Hey, I'm David Bitterman. If we've never met before, I'm a lawyer, and I've been doing this for a while. I started practicing when the latest tool was an IBM Selectric typewriter, if you all know what that is. I'm Jasmine Weatherell. I'm also a lawyer, but I'm a millennial who made the mistake of starting my practice in 2012, right after the Great Recession. And together, we're proud to host the Persuasion Occasion. It's a multi-generational look at advocacy and negotiation. Do I have this right, Jasmine? Millennials are accustomed to having a voice and seat at the table, and they're an optimistic group who loves social media and want their job and encounters to have meaning? Well, David, I'll admit there's some truth in there. But what about baby boomers? They're known for their strong work ethic and often define themselves by their professional accomplishments. Is that true, David? Jasmine, I have no idea. I'm too old to categorize those people, including myself. But let's talk about the show. We're going to look at persuasion from all dimensions. Our guests are going to include... Super lawyers, skilled negotiators, jury consultants, behavioral scientists, mind readers, and other experts, all talking about how to be an effective advocate. And we're really excited about working together. Maybe you more than I, David. (laughs) All right, but let's dive in. Welcome to the Persuasion Occasion. I'm David Bitterman. And I'm Jasmine Weatherell. Today, we've got a fantastic guest, and we know Dr. Abby Morano from a non-Perkins Coie podcast. She's got an extraordinary background, including becoming a professor at age 23, Um, but she's got an extraordinary background and lots of talents. We'll let you describe them, Abby, but particularly, we're interested in talking about nonverbal communication because this is about persuasion. We're really interested in in how nonverbal communication would fit in with persuasive techniques. So with that, Jasmine, I'll turn it over to you for the background questions and we'll go. Yeah, sure. Um, Abby, it's great to meet you. Um, And and I think one of the first things our listeners would like to know is, is what do we really mean by nonverbal communication? You know, I immediately thought it means just body language, but are there other less obvious things that fall under that umbrella? So nonverbal communication really means anything that communicates that isn't a word. So people will typically think of body language, but nonverbal communication also includes things like facial expressions and haptics. So how often you touch, proxemics, how close you get to people. But other things that could be considered nonverbal are things like how you keep your office. You know, what's your lighting? How close are you to a window? Those things. Um, and there's also the nonverbals of the voice that people tend to believe are verbals. For example, your tone of voice your pitch, um, your prosody, things like that, they are paralanguage, so they're the nonverbals of the voice. Okay. Before we even go further into what uh, nonverbal communication, would you just describe for us your background? Because it is extraordinary. You've got a bit of an accent, so you have to explain how you found yourself in Florida, where you are today. Well, thank you for such a, a lovely introduction. So my background is interesting. I started as a researcher in the field of nonverbals when I was 19. So I published my first paper when I was 19 and I worked with Joe Navarro. So I had started creating a study with my lecturer at the time and it was building on some of Joe's work, but we wanted to adapt it to what was current in the literature. And we wanted to take a sequence approach to some of his methods of observation my supervisor at the time reached out to him, assuming he wouldn't reach out. And he did. And he loved the idea. He started working with us. So I started working with Joe. We published two papers. 
We then started working with uh, FBI agents who were criminal profilers and had a serial killer data set. And then I had published three or four papers by, while I was still in undergrad and I'd started doing conferences. Then I got a scholarship for my PhD with CREST, so the Center for Research and Evidence and Security Threats. So I went straight to my PhD. And at that time, I was so dedicated to being a researcher. I just, I was obsessed with the field, but I wanted to make sure that I wasn't having tunnel vision when it came to nonverbals. So I tried out other fields in within forensics. I looked at counterterrorism. I did some work there. I did some publications. I looked at serial killers. Obviously, I've got a lot of publications. Serial in that. killers, did you say? Yes. We wanted to understand the life histories of serial killers and different types of serial killers to see if there were commonalities and differences in their life histories that would lead them to a certain outcome. And it was really interesting, but I just found that dark psychology, it was making me feel negative without me realizing it was making me feel negative. Because when you're working in that space every day, it just feels normal. Um, and I remember I would submit ethics applications and everybody would be sweating, like, what's she going to be looking at today? You know, the whole and this is when I became a, a lecturer. So while I was still finishing off my PhD, I got a lectureship and was, um, you call them professors of psychology here in the US. Um, and I was 23 and everybody, you know, we would laugh. I was on the dark side and they were on the light <laughs> side. And then I started working with Joe a bit more. He brought me into um, JN Forensics as an associate. And I realized I actually loved the business world. And my PhD was using nonverbals for information elicitation. And in business, that's key. And I wanted to understand the psychological mechanisms to underpin that. So it was another layer. So I started working with Joe and he introduced me to Robin Dreek. And I moved from the dark side into trust and closeness and focus solely on cooperation rather than the serial killers stuff. <laughs> and then I really, I got very lucky with the job that I have now. Joe introduced me to Chris Hadnagy because he wanted me to be on his podcast. And at the time, Chris was looking for someone who had expertise in nonverbal communication and information elicitation. And I wanted to move to Florida because you know, I'd send Joe's pictures of him by the pool with a cocktail and I'm sat and it's raining and I'm looking out the window and it's, you know, like four degrees here. So you think I want the Florida lifestyle. <laughs> so I was all ready to move at that point. And when I had the conversation with Chris, he listed all of the things that he was looking for. And it was almost like he perfectly described my career history. And they worked a lot with the FBI and an original dream of mine was to consult for the FBI. So it just felt like this perfect fit. And I remember he said to me, do you know anybody that does what you do? And I said, nobody else does what I do. You should hire me. I want to move to Florida. And he was like, okay, <laughs> you got the job. And, you know, we'd agreed I'd had the job before we talked salary or anything like that, because it was just this perfect fit. So since moving, I've been working as the director of education here. And I, you know, I create scientific courses. I make sure that the social engineering we do is based on valid science and we teach influence persuasion and cooperation a lot first you got to tell us who joe navarro is i i know we wrote a the dictionary of nonverbal communication yeah i just assume everybody you hear the name and you just know he is a world-leading expert in nonverbal communication he's written 14 books one called what everybody is saying and it's sold over a million copies now wow 
while we're here talking about books, you've got to talk about your new book because we've got to give you an opportunity to talk about that. Yes, I have a, a book coming out. I have published my first book. And surprisingly, it isn't in nonverbal communication. And when I published it, because we work a lot with federal agents, I, I posted that I had a book published. Some of the Secret Service agents had commented on the post and said, I can't wait to train my agents on this material. And I had posted back and said, um, oh no, I didn't post back anything because in my head I knew the book isn't about information elicitation at all. It's actually about empowerment and self-help. <laughs> but I am writing a second book already on information elicitation. So I promise the book people expect and want is coming, but the one that is coming out is about self-help and empowerment. Okay. You have to tell our listeners the title so they can they can look it up. Yes. So the title is called Work in Progress. And then the subtitle is The Road to Empowerment, The Journey Through Shame. Okay. We also talk, talk about Chris and his company. So our listeners know a little bit about that too. Yep. So we work for Social Engineer. We run pen tests on people's security networks. So we test human security. So we will run simulated phishing, uh, vishing, which is phone fraud, smishing, which is text fraud, and physical break-ins. So we will break into buildings or fish, vish, and smish a company's human network. And then we teach them how we did it so they can protect against us. So if we break into a building, we will get in and then we will you know, plant USBs, but there's no actual malicious material on it. And then we would teach them how we did it so they can protect themselves from actual malicious attackers. It's such a fun job. The stories that the team have, you know, I, I set a desk and just research. They're the ones breaking into buildings. They have a, the good stories. Uh, wow. So we had an FBI negotiator, Jasmine and I, uh, as one of our guests also. But so what do you train the law, the law enforcement in? We do information licitation, uh, cybersecurity. Um, Chris worked with them originally, like he's trained MI5, FBI, and he trained them in social engineering and cybersecurity. Now that we have me, my area is human vulnerability. So understanding how humans can be influenced and how to influence and then how to protect against it. Okay. Well, ours is all about influence. I'm turning this over to Jasmine so she can ask the question about influence. So I, I'm actually really intrigued by how you say you joined the business world to kind of get away from the dark because... <laughs> yes, I know. I went straight into the dark again, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, so, I mean, when I first heard about this concept, nonverbal cues and, and influencing people through nonverbal cues, my, my immediate reaction is, oh, I could see how there's kind of a, a, a negative application in the business world, because I mean, certainly you hear a lot about these like silly tips and tricks for how to dominate people in the business world. I'm, I'm sure yeah. you've heard this, like sit with your back to a bright window so the person you're talking to can't really see or, <laughs> or do a really strong handshake, you know, a Trump style handshake where you're just trying to dominate them and pull them over to you. Yeah. I, I mean, what what is your perspective on that? Do you think those things are actually effective? So... We don't use those approaches. And the ones you're talking about, they're, they're so common in the business field because it, right. they're power plays. Right. You know, they're cues of power and dominance. And it's all about controlling other people's space and controlling other people's abilities. So, you know, I'm going to sit by the light so that you can't see, or I'm going to dominate the handshake, or you'll see people use their space. They get really big in their space so much that they encroach on yours. You know, we have the 
Man spreading, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's the one man spreading. And, you know, there's the one whoever sat down last wins. Whoever <laughs> stood up high wins. And it's all of these silly tactics. And they don't work long term because these power plays, they don't work via respect or cooperation. You know, you don't have any positive feelings towards that person using that approach to influence. They actually work very um, via negative techniques. So when you use a negative effect, it doesn't create a long-term positive interaction. And if you want to continuously influence someone, you want things that will contribute to positive rapport and long-term interaction and interpersonal closeness. So those approaches don't work because they're also not genuine feelings. So when someone is using a power play, you're not doing what you're told because you want to, you're doing it because you feel intimidated. Now, when we influence, we have a saying, we say, make them want to tell you. And when we want to get information from someone, our approach is, how do we become someone they want to talk to? Instead of how do I get them to trust me? How do I become someone that is trustworthy enough for them to feel safe sharing information? That is a really good long-term strategy and nonverbals help a great deal with that. When you use these power plays and these dominance approaches, it doesn't make you that safe space. It doesn't make you someone that they feel comfortable with. They do it for the negative reasons. So it isn't a very good long-term strategy. What, what are the strategies that you would recommend in terms of information solicitation and developing that kind of relationships? Yep, so the, the biggest interpersonal factor that increases likelihood to share information is trust because sharing information is personal. You know, it includes vulnerability and trust is all about vulnerability. If you give someone information about yourself, you are putting yourself in a space where they could potentially exploit that, particularly in the business world. So we want to appear trustworthy because trust is the interpersonal side of it. It's the outcome. You can't necessarily have a very good control over trust to the same degree, but what you can do is appear trustworthy to help facilitate trust. And nonverbals can do that. So the best way to do that is to show positive intent because we've evolved to be able to pick up negative versus positive intent because we had to, as um, a species in our evolutionary history, navigate a very dangerous environment. So we need to understand if people have positive or negative intent. So that's really the basics. So if we look at how to show positive intent, it's really showing positive emotion and showing interest. So if I have positive intent, I'm going to simply smile at you. You know, if someone greets you and they're smiling, it shows more positive intent than if they're not smiling. I'm also going to make sure I'm a more emotionally expressive because emotional expressivity is one of the key factors showing positive intent. I'm also going to show interest to you while you're talking. I'm going to be following along. You know, I'm going to be showing active listening cues because it's showing I have positive intent. It's showing I have positive interest in what you're saying. And those things sound so basic, but the reason that we hear them so often is because the literature has shown time and time again, positive intention cues, active listening cues, interest cues, it goes a long way because it makes people feel validated and it helps you appear trustworthy. I'm curious to hear about the background because, uh, I mean, you have a very science-based background. So how do you empirically measure 
these nonverbal cues and, and whether they're effective or not. I love when people ask about the science of it, because my background is academia and I am an academic at heart. I always will be. And you never really get to dive into the science um, in industry as much. So I, I love this question. In terms of how we measure the nonverbals, there's a big move towards automatic measurement. So in my PhD, I use motion capture. Um, and be- because when we analyze nonverbals manually, we can only see what we can see. And there's obviously human error involved. When we have automatic measurement, there's no human error involved. And we can have a much more nuanced measurement. So I can measure muscle movements and small movements like, you know, moving of the fingers that you might not see. And the problem with motion capture is often it involves wearing a really tight fitting suit. <laughs> but there's now, and that will restrict human movement, right? So you're not going to see the, the right nonverbals. But if you use more advanced technologies, like I got the privilege of using Xsense motion capture suits, which are just little trackers that you put on the body and they're lightweight, they don't restrict movement, you don't have to wear a tight-fitting suit or anything like that. And then you get them to do any kind of activity depending on what your study is and you can automatically measure the nonverbals. For example, my background um, from my PhD was looking at nonverbal mimicry and how we can use mimicry to influence cooperation in multiple forms, including facilitation of trust, facilitation of closeness, and then ultimately information elicitation. So I would have participants come in, um, and for the first uh, condition I had people with different relationship types because I wanted to understand if mimicry would vary depending on closeness. So I could understand what the mechanisms behind it were because the literature said closeness, but there was no robust measurement. Like you asked about how do we measure nonverbals? Well, there was no robust measurement of the process of mimicry, but it suggested closeness, but I wanted to confirm that. And then if it was closeness, I could then look at the naturally occurring amount of mimicry in my participants and then reverse engineer that to create training protocols because I was able to identify parts of the body which showed the most mimicry and the parts that show the most mimicry, I then take that into training protocols. So people can use it in interviews because if I say mimic each other, Jasmine, mimic David, you're just going to kind of decide what to mimic. But how do you know empirically that that behavior is going to be effective? So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to that deeper level of first understand the mechanisms behind it and then use that understanding of the mechanism to create effective training protocols. Um, So I had them fitted with the motion capture suits and then put them in a room where they had riddles on the wall. (laughs) <laughs> and they had to stand in this room with a one-way window so I could see them. They couldn't see me. And they had to work together just to solve these riddles. And they thought that it was a puzzle-solving task. And I was measuring their heart rate. And ah. I said it was anxiety levels, interacting with a stranger, things like that for the stranger condition. And then I can't remember what excuse I gave for why they were wearing it. But I think I said I was measuring like body temperature, heart rate, things like that during puzzle-solving. And what I was measuring really was how much mimicry occurred between them and where the mimicry occurred. And then I pulled out that data and it it did vary depending on closeness. So the strangers showed the least mimicry, acquaintances showed more mimicry, 
and then romantic partners showed the most. So it did tell me that there is a linear relationship between mimicry and closeness, meaning if I took those body parts that were mimicked the most, put them into training protocols, I could train confederates to mimic and then have them interact with strangers and potentially obtain information from them by creating a feeling of closeness. And that's exactly what I did in the follow-up studies. Um, And I, I varied how I obtained cooperation. I did informational elicitation via personal and sensitive information. And then I also did a third study where they watched people mimic each other without knowing that that's what they were watching. And then to see if they felt more cooperative towards just observations of people mimicking. And they did. And that was the final study. So that's how I found it from the scientific basis. And then I took that. And now in the private sector, I train in the cooperation of it. Wow. Before we we get too far down the line, when you say mimicry, I, I mean, what does that really mean? It's like David scratches his nose and then I, I copy him scratching his nose and suddenly we're, <laughs> we're cooperating. Yeah. So that there's different forms of mimicry. And again, because I spent so long in this field, I just, I say the terms and I forget to go back and explain them. So mimicry really means using the same behavior that someone else has just shown without intentionally doing so. So for example, if person A will stand with their hand on their hip, person B might stand with their hand on their hip because they observe it, but they don't think to themselves, I've just seen you do this, I'm going to do it. It's something that happens unconsciously. And there's different types, that's nonverbal mimicry. And then other mimicry is facial or emotional mimicry. So mimicry of the face is different to mimicry of the body because the face carries emotional information whereas the body doesn't as much. They, they work through slightly different processes. So I focused on mimicry of the body because, again, we very consci- uh, very unconsciously mimic the face. And I was really interested in that more subtle approach. If you move your leg, does me moving my leg, which is less likely to be identified than me copying your face expressions, I wanted to see if it would have an effect because it's much easier to train in industry because it's much more subtle. So that's what I focused on. But when you understand how to use it effectively, you can use it consciously. So like I did, when you understand the timing of it is important, the context of it is important. And factors like that, you know, like if you put your hand up and I instantly copy and keep it, then you put it down, I put it down, it's going to be overt. It's not going to have the same effects. When you understand the limitations in the process through how it works, you can use it really effectively. Just now you said, you know, that sometimes the mimicry is unconscious, or at least what you were observing was unconscious. But then at the same time, you can train people to do this. So is mimicry as a behavior the result of people cooperating? Or does mimicry actually help people cooperate? Or does it work both ways? So it's both. And this is a really interesting area because there's limits to when you should use mimicry and when you shouldn't. So mimicry naturally occurs when we're in cooperative relationships and interactions. For example, you can look at patients and their therapist and identify how much rapport they have via how much mimicry is occurring between them. And you can use mimicry to then create more rapport. The problem is the relationship needs to be positive to use mimicry because it's a co-op, it's been called a cooperation enhancing mechanism. Mm. 
So if you are in a negative interaction where you're competitors and you use a cooperation enhancing mechanism, but it's a competitive interaction, it actually counters it. It can create dislike. So if you're in an argument and you try to mimic, it creates more dislike than it does liking. So you have to be strategic over how you're using it. So if you're interacting with someone that's maybe a competitor or a stranger, but the the interaction itself is geared towards cooperation and it's cohesive and collegial, you can use you can use mimicry then to create more cooperation and enhance cooperation. But if that interaction is not cohesive, you don't want to use it because it can have a, a reverse effect. Um, and the timing is really important as well. Um, and this is something often overlooked because if people recognize that you're mimicking, it stops being mimicry and it becomes mocking. <laughs> if I'm interacting and I see you copying what I'm doing, I'm going to be so frustrated. I'm just going to say, stop copying me. It's uncomfortable. So you want it to be not overt. You want it to be very subtle. And what I say to avoid is, you know, face and hand behaviors a lot of the time. Like when we scratch our face and somebody else does unconsciously, we tend to laugh and go, you just copied me. I just made you scratch your face. <laughs> and we know that it's, and it can be, you know, a funny interaction. We do it all the time, but we do it and we laugh about it because it's overt. So you want it to be subtle. Um, and if you mimic within one to three seconds of them showing the behavior, it can be more overt and they can notice it and then it can become that mocking. There's really a, a golden area and it's the five plus or minus two. So three to seven seconds after seeing it is when you should ideally be mimicking. And anything from 10 seconds onwards, it stops being mimicry and it's now you just showing that behavior because it's too delayed. I get a lot of concerns when it comes to mimicry of people saying, well, it creates too much cognitive overload. I'm trying to copy your behaviors and think about the questions I'm giving. So it's too much. Absolutely. And that's the problem with it. That's why you need to train. So it took 24 hours per confederate. I trained three confederates to 90% accuracy in different types of mimicry and 24 hours of training over a month to get them to 90%. So it's not something I can just say, here's what you mimic. And then instantly you're really good. It takes a lot of active training, but it's really effective if you are professionally trained in it. You know, it just takes dedication. I wouldn't suggest you go and take the behaviors and now go and use it in a really important business meeting because you probably will mess up your questions. It's going to create too much overload <laughs> and you might end up looking a little bit silly if you're trying to copy everybody's behaviors at the same time. When you say confederates, are you talking about like undercover agents? So a confederate in um, the scientific field just means somebody who is involved in the study, but participants, so people that are being tested, believe they are another participant. So when I bring participants into the lab and tell them I'm doing a study and I say, here's another participant, you're going to interact. I pretend I've never met this participant and they pretend they have no idea what's going on with the study when actually they are scientific undercover agents they know <laughs> and they have a certain task to do that sounds much cooler than confederates yeah. and i call them my scientific undercover agents from now on <laughs> so we don't have 24 hours in a month but can you t give us like a few clues on what maybe 
So you don't have to be as proficient as I had them because they were fully trained in different types of mimicry um, and they had more than one behavior. So I trained five behaviors that every time they saw them, they would mimic and I did them to varying degrees so I could identify how intensely the mimicry has to be to be most effective. So you don't have to do it at that level because if it's not a technique you're going to use consistently, say in investigative interview, what I would say, those individuals should be very proficient. But if it's just another tool in your belt that you want to use during meetings, you can absolutely use it more effectively without 24 hours of training, but it does require practice. Now, the most influential and significant part of the body shown in mimicry is actually the lower body. So mimicry of the legs was shown to be most effective rather than the arms. The arms were least effective. And I can't say exactly why, but our discussion and um, our opinion on it was when we talk, we talk with our hands. So typically the explanation part of what we're talking about will overtake the mimicry aspect. So the mimicry effect is lower because we use our arms for other things. Whereas the legs, unless you're, you know, conversing on the go, is probably very stable and still. So tapping of the foot has been shown in the literature to be a really effective one. If someone's tapping their foot, tapping your foot at the same kind of rhythm creates synchrony because you're in time, but the mimicry also helps to create cooperation. And simply, the best one is just mimic their posture. So look at how they're sat, look at what their legs are doing. Mimic where their legs are orientated. So if they're orientated towards you, orientate towards them. If they're sat with, you know, in a figure four pose where they've got one ankle on the knee of the other, sit in a figure four pose. If they are, you know, stood up with one hip dipped, stand with one hip hip dipped. So there's loads of really subtle ways you can use it that doesn't take a lot of cognitive energy. It's just if you want to use it as a really effective technique as often as, you know, if you're an investigative interviewer or an interviewer in general and you are in that setting every day, then I would say go and look at, you know, more advanced uses of it. But simply mimicking legs and posture is a really effective way to get started. Uh, and is that the same as what they call mirroring and matching? Is that, or is that different? So yeah, there's subtle differences. So synchrony is when you're in time. So it's not mirroring and mimicry of one does one and then the other does one. Yeah. It's synchrony together. And right? then mirroring and mimicry tend to be used the same mirroring really is when it's around the same time and then mimicry is one than the other so i just say for ease of communication i tend to just stick to the term mimicry because i think it's more explanatory of what you're actually doing you are mimicking exactly what they're doing so jasmine you think we can use this at depositions to get more information yeah if we're in person right (laughs) so that's another great point When I said about the third party study, because my PhD was running through COVID, my final study really got hijacked because I used motion capture suits. So every participant that came in was in a room with me, multiple people in a room, and I had to touch every one of them because I had to fit the um, sensors on them. So I would have broken every single COVID rule if I carried on doing my study. So I couldn't. And I 
remember thinking to myself, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to change my studies completely. And I remember speaking to my supervisor at the time and I said to him, I don't know what we're going to do. And I had him and his wife, who was my other supervisor, and he said, well, why don't you look at the final study, mimicry virtually? And I said, well, it's not going to work virtually. And he laughed and he said, but you're mimicking Stacy right now. I, <laughs> I had changed my entire posture, how I was sat with my arm the same way she was sat, my head in the exact same way. And I felt very close to Stacy. She was someone that I trusted, I very much liked and respected. So it made sense that I was mimicking her and not Paul because we had a, a greater relationship. And I was, I was mimicking everything she was doing without realizing. And I just said to myself and to Paul, okay, we'll do it. So we looked at mimicry virtually and it's just as effective. Wow. But it's not just with the one that you're mimicking. It's say if there's three of us interacting now, you two can go off prior to the interaction and say, okay, well, we're going to try and synchronize our behaviors because observing people mimicking each other creates more cooperative feelings towards those individuals. It's not just in the interaction itself, it's observing the mimicry, both in person and virtually, that it has a very similar effect. Wow. So I have to get into the millennial versus boomer debate now. Because, oh, that's right. That's that's what this right, show's all about. Right. Sorry, I forgot the theme. <laughs> well, well, so the, the whole virtual concept kind of brought this up. I, I mean, you hear so often that millennials and Gen Z, we don't know how to communicate. All we do is text. You know, the most you're going to get out of us is a FaceTime call. Yeah. We're never doing things in person. We're afraid of phone calls, all this. I mean, do you think that's true? Is there is there some truth that maybe boomer generation people are better at this sort of nonverbal cue communication than younger people? Yes and no. So we communicate nonverbally because it's it's written into our DNA, because it's universal, because it's it's a carryover from evolution. So it's it's in all of us that we have these behaviors. So if someone is, you know, sat in their bedroom looking at something that's made them feel a certain way, them expressing that emotion is going to be the same facial expression as someone who is very proficient in communication expressing it because it's a biological expression and it's ingrained into us. Now, the difference is the social media and technology generation, they're not as good at consciously picking up and expressing cues, especially because there's a high level of anxiety now as well. If we look at the statistics, anxiety and mental health has gone way up compared to what it was. Um, and a lot of it is social media. We're coming out of COVID. So people were isolated for some people almost two years. And what that does is when you stop using a skill, it stops you being as proficient in that skill. And people got used to communicating online with their cameras off drives me crazy. So people stopped even virtually communicating in the same way. And after COVID, we know that mental health really was an issue for a lot of young people. So now we have that and we know anxiety majorly affects the expression of nonverbal cues. And it does have a hindrance effect on interpersonal communication in a positive way because you can't show positive intent and communicate and um, clear communication cues as effectively. It does affect behavior because it, you show more nervousness cues, which 
then relate to judgments of lack of confidence, which relate to lack of competence. So it is really this negative cycle. Um, but it's not that they don't have the natural ability. We all have a natural ability to unconsciously pick up on certain cues. But nonverbals is a skill that does need to be nourished. It's like any other skill. You know, if you want to learn a language, you can't just have known some of it. And then in a few years time, remember everything you learned before. You have to go back and relearn it. And anybody that started learning a language and stopped knows the frustration of having to relearn everything they forgot. And it's very similar with nonverbals. When you take yourself out of social spaces and you stop using nonverbals and you stop trying to show confidence and you stop learning about how to show confidence, you lose the ability. So they need to come back out into real life and turn cameras on and get the practice. And I think one of the reasons that nonverbals, for some people, when we went virtual, half of the people realized nonverbals are really important. Now they couldn't use it. They realized they were lacking and recognized that verbally, I mean, virtually, we have a lot of control. You know, because I'm in a, a static environment, I can control this environment very well. Whereas other people thought, well, now we're not in person. What's the point? You know, I, I'm not going to have the same effect virtually. So I'm not going to turn my camera on or I'm not going to get a good microphone. I'm not going to get a good camera. I'm going to hold my phone for the whole meeting in a really dark room. So you can just see from my chin upward. I've seen those where the only light is the computer screen reflecting up uh -huh. from the bottom of their face. <laughs> I know. And it's just from the, the chin upwards or from, you know, the forehead down because they think, well, what does it matter? You know, we're not in person. It doesn't matter, but it matters. It has the same effect and we can really have a lot of control. But I think a lot of the younger generation, they've got comfortable not using nonverbals to communicate. And it is really sad to see because now they will go out into interviews and not be proficient in a very important skill. For example, we know when it comes to interviews, most of the time, a judgment as to whether they're going to employ you is made within the first few seconds because oh, first impressions matter. Yep. Judgments of perceived trustworthiness and confidence as somebody walks in the room has a major impact on the rest of that interaction, especially because when we make a judgment about someone, it changes how we interact with them and it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we see them as trustworthy versus not trustworthy, we're going to adapt the way we interpret their answers as well as the way we talk to them to kind of get the outcome we expect. And we do it very unconsciously. Like there are studies showing that when you tell a teacher who is the most intellectual and intelligent student, they interact with that student differently and they end up getting better grades versus if you say this is a really stupid, not hardworking student, they interact with them differently and they get worse grades because we create the outcome we expect to have because we make minor tweaks to our behaviors that end up nudging the interaction in that way. So when you come in and your hair's not brushed and you, you're not taking care of the clothes that you're wearing and you're not focused up focused on sitting up straight, smiling, being expressive, using your gestures. You're creating 
a barrier to your success prior to even answering any questions. So what what should you do when you walk in to get to do an interview? What should you do? So you want to exude confidence, not arrogance. So it's not about the power play. And I think people get really confused with this. They they want to show I'm the boss here. So I'm going to get the tallest in, chair in the dominate. room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, maybe they'll slightly squat over their seat to a bit taller or something like that. Um, but it's not that isn't effective because the problem is when you appear powerful, it's appearing dominant. And dominance is about control over not just yourself, but other people. Whereas confidence is just about yourself. Confidence is, I'm good in my own ability. If you ever hear someone say that they come in through and they're the best in the room and they're, they're better than everybody else, so everybody wants to be like them, they're trying to show dominance. And that is a very negative person to be around. It doesn't make us feel good. If someone is, I'm the best I can be, not I'm better than them, I'm better than her, I'm better than him. I'm the best I can be. It has nothing to do with anybody else. That's confidence. And it's the same with nonverbals. So when you show confidence, it's about being comfortable in your own space. You know, you can get big or you can get small, but it's about being fluid. It's about being comfortable. Dominance is about showing you control the space. It's about big movements. So, and you see it sometimes with these really ridiculous stances people will stand with their uh, hands on their hips with their elbows out and their legs spread right out taking up as much space because they're like this is my space confidence doesn't look like that confidence can look like hands on the hips but it's not as theatric as the dominance is it's just about comfort and I was recently speaking to a lawyer he was giving a pitch I wanted to improve his show of confidence and he wasn't doing anything with his gestures and I said you need to use your hands and your arms because we know from studies that people look at your hands the most and then your face so he then changed from nothing to big and bold and he he wasn't getting his head around this it's not about being big and bold and it's not like sharp quick movements because that's dominant that can be very intimidating and I said to him imagine you're in water Imagine you're just speaking to me, moving through water. And then instantly he got it because instead of being sharp and quick and bold, it was fluid and comfortable and smooth. And that's confidence. You know, confidence can be overt or it can be quiet and subtle. But when you look at it, you can see that that's somebody that is not trying to subdue themselves. It's just somebody who is comfortable in their space. So that's probably my best advice of when you're unsure how to use nonverbals, don't try and overdo it because I see that all the time and people don't feel comfortable in their knowledge. They would try and do too much and try and be too big and try and be too powerful and dominant. And it just, it has the reverse effect, show comfort, show positive intention and show confidence. It's not about being big and bold. It's just about being comfortable. I'll just make one comment. So th there was this big movement in pop psychology a couple of years ago to do power poses. <laughs> it, it would, do you remember this? You, it would even tell you like, oh, go into the bathroom and do power poses to make yourself feel confident before a presentation. But sounds like <laughs> that was just pop psychology. <laughs> so the power pose is 
misunderstood in both. And it's from Amy Cuddy's work. And there was a lot of backlash with her work on the power pose because she said that there were biological changes. I think 31 research studies have tried to replicate the biological changes and never found any or behavioral changes. However, when we talk about power pose, a better name for it is expansive gestures. So expansive doesn't necessarily mean dominant because expansive gestures are related to confidence. And that just means keeping your limbs away from your body, which is confidence. You keep them relatively away, but there's a limit. You know, if I'm talking with my arms out here, it is expansive. If I'm talking with them out here, it's overly expansive. So you do want to show expansive gestures. You want to be bold and standing with your hands on your hips. Like I said, that's fine. That is confidence. But what does the rest of your body say? You know, you don't want to do this too much because it can be a little bit threatening because it's elbows out. So I say, you know, stand with your hands, you know, whether you want to have them like that or just away, you want them to be bigger, but not too big. And the power pose does have some effects. And I just, I don't like the word power pose, but the expansive gestures does have some effects. Because when we put ourselves in a position where we look confident, it doesn't have a biological change in the body. In the face, it does. We know smiling affects uh, how we actually feel, just like frowning affects how we feel because of signals to the brain via the facial nerve. But with the body, when we are expansive, it doesn't have a biological change, but it makes us feel more confident. And studies have repeatedly shown that when we sit with confidence and stand with confidence, we feel more confident. And when we feel more confident, we have better interactions. So it might not, oh, it doesn't have this huge effect like it was proposed, but it does have an effect on the self. And how we feel about ourselves does have an effect in the interaction. So when you hear power pose, don't think as big as possible. Just think limbs relatively away from my body, fluid movement, and not making myself really small and restricted. And I think that's a a better way to think about it. Does the context matter in terms of, you know, what you should do? I was just going to give you some that that we do just so you can can help us out here. So A... (laughs) Jasmine and I, we do a lot of like roundtables where we talk to other okay. lawyers about things that we're, we're supposedly know. And, and we, you know, have a PowerPoint and all that stuff. And, and then, so that's one situation. Then two, we have to argue in court. And then three, sometimes we have to deal with the mediator and try to tell the mediator why our side's right. So yeah. is there, what would you do in those three situations? Are there different approaches to each? Yeah, so the the premise is the same of show positive intention when someone's talking, orientate towards them, show interest, show positive intent and smile, be expressive because the underlying reasons of why they work are biological and evolutionary. So they're going to be important overall, but the context will have an effect. For example, if you're standing up doing a presentation versus sat down at a table, the context is going to have an effect because your body is going to be slightly different. You know, I'm not going to be able to see your lower body or I'm going to expect certain things from you. So the context has an expectation effect. If you are 
presenting, I have a certain expectation that you are going to be confident. If we are in a bar versus a conference, I'm going to have different expectations as to what I want to see from you because the context will have an, a, a change. You know, in a bar, it's probably a lot more appropriate to be over and be more expressive and over the top. Whereas in a conference, in a professional setting, being a little bit more restricted is expected. It's not out of context. So it has an effect in that degree. But in terms of what you should be showing with the orientation, with the posture, with um, with confidence displays, it's exactly the same in context. It's just, you know, is it hot in the room? Is it cold in the room? That will affect what behaviors you see from someone. Things like what time of day is it? It's going to affect blood sugar levels. So as an observer, those things affect behavior in different contexts and different times. So as an observer, when you're reading someone else's behavior, you really want to take into account the context of the interaction. But when you're displaying nonverbals, showing trustworthiness, showing positive intention is important in every single context. Okay. I got it. I think. I think I got it. Jasmine, you, you got you got it? Do you think? <laughs> I think so. And I mean I am I am curious about, you know, we also do a lot of settlement negotiations, me and David, is talking with the other side. And, and that's always, you know innately adversarial and you're always kind of worried that the other person's lying about their position. Um, do you think that there's truth to this concept of you can look at someone's body language and figure out if they're lying to you about something or, or is that like that show, uh, lie to me? <laughs> I have a love hate relationship with this question. <laughs> okay. I love it because it's always an opportunity to teach a misunderstood question um, but I hate it because I get it so much. And because it's it's what people think of when they think of nonverbals, they think deception detection. Yeah. I, I mean, because you work with FBI, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you see so much on YouTube where people come in and they go, by the end of this lecture, you're all going to be expert lie detectors. Or they'll come in and say, I'm a human lie detector. And it's everywhere. And it sells. <laughs> and it's on YouTube of people watching trials or interactions telling you why they know that that person's lying. And for the general public, those people, they sound like they know what they're doing. And they say, I'm an expert. So you go, well, they say expert. They're saying things that sound like science. So I believe them. You know, if someone was doing that with something to do with chemistry, I wouldn't have a clue. So I would just assume, well, it says chemistry expert. So I'm going to believe them. Whereas most of the time in nonverbals, those people know what sells and then they'll sell you a course about how to detect deception. And it's very clear in the scientific literature, you cannot detect deception by a nonverbals. And the reason is because deception is a thought process. So what you can detect through nonverbals are emotions related to being deceptive. For example, when someone is being deceptive, they're going to show more distress. They're going to show more stress, usually. They're also going to show leakage cues of cognitive overload and things are like fear of being found out. However, if I convince myself I'm telling the truth when I'm lying, I'm not going to show distress. I'm not going to show stress. I'm not going to show fear because I've convinced myself I'm lying. So if I come into an interaction 
and I'm stressed because I'm lying. How can you differentiate that from I come into an interaction, I'm stressed because I just had an argument with my partner before this, that you can't. And Chris and I always say you can see the what, but you can't see the why. You can't identify thought processes via nonverbals. You can identify intentions, so the positive versus negative intent, because you can look at orientation, you can look at how close they are leaning towards you, you can look at cues of, you know, different emotions, anger, fight, flight, freeze, those things. But you can't see thought processes. So you can use that what to then navigate your questioning and through verbal techniques, fact-checking, statement analysis, you can identify deception. This is why when it comes to identifying deception, nonverbals is a tool. It's not the whole toolkit. You can't say, I've seen this nonverbal. Like a lot of people will look at pupil dilation. Um, and I had this meeting the other day um, with a secret service agent. He was asking about eye movement behaviors and deception. And I was saying, really, the eyes don't tell you much because, because also people are very aware that the eyes are, you know, the gateway to the soul or whatever they say. <laughs> so they're very aware that if they look away, they might be perceived as lying. So there's a tendency to give you more eye contact. But some people look away when they're nervous. And how can you tell if someone's nervous because you've said they're lying so they feel, when someone says you're guilty, even when we're innocent, we feel guilt. It's natural. So how do you know that it's the guilt from that or actual guilt? You don't. And lots of people say, oh, well, pupil dilation. You can't control that. Yeah, great. But if you're close enough to identify pupil dilation, what you're going to see is discomfort because you're so close right. to <laughs> pupil dilation. You know, someone put their face that close to mine, I'm going to show distress because get your face out of my face. You know, it just, it's not effective. So those cues, they're not useful cues. Whether or not the pupil dilation did show deception doesn't really matter because you can't use it in a real environment. So when it comes to nonverbals, it's a tool. It can really help you identify attempts to conceal emotion. You can identify perception management very well with nonverbals. And that's because when we're trying to fake an emotion, it happens through a different motor neuron pathway than when the emotion is spontaneous. So there is a delay. If I have to say this is what I should show, it's going to be a slight delay because I've got to have the cognition of this is what I need to show. And they also tend to last longer. If I'm faking a smile, my smile onset will be delayed. And then it will last a bit longer because we have to actively stop the movement. Whereas a genuine smile goes through a different motor neuron pathway that activates and deactivates unconsciously. So we don't have to think, oh, I have to put my smile down. But that's what's going through our head when we're perception managing. We are saying, this is what I should show. Now I stop showing it. This is what else I should show. Now I stop showing it. Quick thoughts, but that is what's happening. So you can tell faked emotions, but again, you can't tell why. So nonverbals are helpful, but it's not the whole picture. The way this reminds me, I saw a, I, I got all these trial things and seminars. And, and so a, he's a good friend of ours. Yes. So he, he showed uh, the testimony of Amber Heard 
I was just about to say Amber Heard. Oh, I want to hear it. All right, tell us about it. We got to hear about it. So, yes, that's what he showed us and said, oh, you can see. Anyway, go ahead. I'm going to let you talk about it. I'll shut up. Yeah, I think she was the perfect example of the cognition of this is what I should show. Because you could see the facial expression she was showing. It was very uncomfortable. And when you ask people to watch it, they, they feel uncomfortable because we know what we naturally expect. And when things break expectation, it's uncomfortable for us to watch. And even if we don't fully know why, something in our gut says something's off because we're naturally very in, in tune with nonverbals. Her expressions were very confusing. Very uncanny. Yeah, they, they didn't feel genuine. You know, I don't want to make any over assumptions because it was, you know, I wasn't on that case. And in retrospect, you know, it's, it's easy to say, but her emotions were not, it did not look like they were genuinely expressed. The facial expressions shown were not consistent with authentic expressions. And when we switch emotion, when it's a true emotion, our emotions overlap. So if we're going from, you know, we're crying and sad, and then you tell me a joke and I'm going to laugh, you know, sometimes that's the British way. If we're sad, we, we laugh. You know, we tell a joke, we laugh about it. So what you're going to see is a transition behavior. So you're not going to see happiness onset, offset, sadness onset, offset. You're going to see a merging of behaviors because we're naturally going to transition from one emotion to the other. And our emotions naturally do that anyway. So there's a, a fluidity to how we express our emotions. When they're fake, because again, it's a different motor neuron pathway that has to be actively activated. You have to consciously do it. It's not the one that automatically comes on, automatically changes. So you're going to see onset, offset, onset, offset, onset, offset. Her emotional expressions were very quick on, quick off. And changed very sharply from this emotion is expected. Now it's stopped expected. Now this is what I should show. Now I'm done showing that. Now this is what I should show. Like it was very like a light switch on off. And it just isn't natural. It lacked that fluidity of genuine expressivity. We're part of a of a law firm that it has many offices. And some of the offices are are. Uh, in sort of areas where, uh, not to uh, overcharacterize things, but where everyone's outwardly really nice, right? Yes. And and and, yeah, and <laughs> so, but you never really know what they're thinking, right? Yeah. So, but how do you get through that? And does that happen a lot? And does it happen in certain cultures and stuff like that? Yes. Yeah, so perception management is common, and we're, we're taught to do it. You know, we're told to hide a smile when the smile is not appropriate. You know, if someone falls over and you want to laugh, our parents say you can't laugh. You know, you have to show empathy. So we restrict an expression to be more in line with how we want to be perceived and what's appropriate to be perceived. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we all should do that to a degree. You go into a job interview and you're tired and you don't want to show you're tired. You want to pretend that you have lots of energy and you really want to be there and you really want the job. So I don't think that that's a, a bad thing. It becomes bad when you are showing positive intention by perception management when you have negative intention. Because if you're showing you're being cooperative when actually you're being very backhanded and you are 
you know, ripping them off when you're saying, yeah, you know, 50-50, when actually you're doing, you know, and this probably happens in law quite a lot, I imagine. So that is very difficult. Um, but looking at the time in which the emotion comes on versus off is a really good cue. And again, looking at the fluidity of emotions, like I said, we, we naturally transition and have a transition behavior where it shows happiness, happiness and sadness, sadness, happiness, sadness. That's a fiend expression. When there's no transition between emotion, it's likely activated, deactivated. Because like I said, we have different motor neuron pathways. And only 10% of people can show activation in certain muscles. Like we have um, a muscle under the eye that when we smile and it's genuine, you can genuinely identify a true smile. And we also have um, these lip corner depressors. And when if you try and pull these bits of your lips down, it's really difficult. But when we're genuinely sad, they pull down. So if someone's trying to fake sadness, not many people can actually use this muscle because it's a different motor neuron pathway that has to actively be activated. And that muscle group doesn't sit in that pathway. So I can't actively activate them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to compensate to see people pull up the chin and they'll, they'll you know, use their chin instead because it kind of looks like it, but not quite. So you can identify slight changes in what should be expressed versus what is expressed by compensatory behaviors. And that is a good way to identify whether it's a genuine cue. And then alongside the timing of onset, how long they last, like genuine expressions don't last that long. If I have a genuine smile and I keep it for like 10 minutes, it's going to feel very uncomfortable. They tend to have a very quick onset offset. Whereas when we're faking them, we overcompensate by holding them for too long. It says when it feels a little bit too long, it probably is um, a fiend expression. So I can't let you get away, Abby, without asking about the serial killer data set. <laughs> so I, that that like pinged my brain right away. I, and I just have to ask, you know, a lot of times you will hear, oh, serial killers are, are really creepy, dangerous. But then on the other side, you also hear they're exceptionally charming people and they're so good at connecting with you and that's how they trick you. Did you have any takeaways from that data? So the data set was a huge data set. So we had information on things like, were they bullied as a kid? Did they wet the bed? What was their upbringing like? Did they drink? Did their parents drink? What was the month they were born in? Did their parents drink when they were in the womb? Things like that. So we had a huge data set. Things that stood out were not what was expected. Like people think that serial killers, you're able to see a monster. They walk around with, I'm a monster on the head and they do monstrous behaviors all the time. What you actually see is they tend to have very difficult lives. They tend to have a lot of abuse, not always, but they tend to have a lot of abuse. They tend to have low economic status. They tend to have alcohol or drug consumption. And they tend to hurt animals, but not always. So there are cues that are consistent. But this idea that, you know, the, the triad of they wet the bed, they set fires, they hurt animals, there's there's not actually any basis to that from what we've seen. But they do show more dangerous behaviors in their life history. But what is shocking is how normal they appear. 
the biggest factor is they have very difficult lives. They tend, some people have very high IQ, some people have very low IQ. They're very much just like, if you looked at the sample, it looks like a sample of ordinary people with difficult upbringings. It's then you see factors like hurting animals is one of the biggest tells that we've seen that stands out as a behavior that is so different to what you would expect someone to do. The And we see youth criminal behavior, but again, not always, because there is an idea of this graduation that they start with small, petty crimes, and then they'll work up. But again, not always. It's very complicated, but too often they appear like ordinary people. There is increased mental health and there is increased um, brain abnormalities, particularly in cannibalistic serial killers. We did studies with cannibalistic versus non-cannibalistic. Wow. What led to that extreme behavior? And the differences were biological more than anything. They tend to have actual brain issues, whereas serial killers tend to have a high degree of mental health and abuse and drinking behavior. But surprisingly, not all of them are psychopathic. We assume that serial killers are all psychopathic, and that's not necessarily the case. Being psychopathic does allow you to more easily be a serial killer because you have no empathy, but it's not a necessity for it, which is very shocking. Wow. So cannibals are nature. (laughs) Other serial killers are nurture. (laughs) I think nature and nurture comes into play. Like, you know, you don't want to ever justify behavior, but when you look at somebody's life history, when they commit crimes or they've, they've killed somebody, and then you look and usually what you see is childhood abuse, parental drinking, and you see low economic status and you see bullying. And you think, well, of course, this person had a, a difficult upbringing because it, it changes the way you interact with your environment. You go into crime and then you go into more crime because you're now around people committing crime and you graduate and you do more bad things. You're around more bad things. So you do think they had a very difficult start to life. Definitely, you know, people that have a bad start to life don't always go up to kill people. So there's definitely mental health and personality and psychopathy and all of those things too that come into play. But really what I always think when I look at this data set is it just screams to me that we need better policies early in life. You know, not preventing serial killers at the outset. Do it early on, do it at the onset. The onset is those childhood years where abuse is occurring because it sets off emotion of events you know, you it starts the sequence of negative behaviors. So that was one of the greatest things that we saw from the data set of there tended to be this really difficult upbringing. So if we want to reduce murder and serial killing our society, we, we stop focusing in the later years. We start implementing better care for children. We better um, social services, particularly foster care where a lot of people come out and engage in very negative behaviors because they haven't had a strong support system. So implementing care there, maybe you will see a reduction in serial killers in 20, 30 years time. It's very difficult to get a policy in place that says, give me a few million, billion dollars to implement this. 
And in 30 years time, there might be a reduction. Like it's just a very difficult thing to implement. But that was what we really pulled out from that. Okay. Well, well, we cannot end on cruelty to animals. There's no way. <laughs> I, I see why it's the dark side. <laughs> so uh, there's a waiter at a restaurant we go to. Jasmine goes to the same restaurant. You know where I'm talking about, Jasmine. He worked in New York for like, you know, a long time, New York restaurants. Then he's been working in LA restaurants. It's kind of a show, you know, a lot of people from the entertainment industry go to that restaurant. So, but he says, New Yorkers, it's, 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 you know, you effing jerk, you effing jerk. And they walk away and say, I love that guy. I love that guy. Yes. And he says, LA, it's they hug, you're the best. And they walk away and they go, I hate that. Song. So is that true? <laughs> I just want to know. <laughs> so it's funny that you say New York as well, because New York is in America, the closest culture to Britain. Um, and our culture affects how comfortable we are with proxemics. So some cultures like in the West, we tend to be less comfortable in each other's space. We like a, a bit of a wider gap. In England, the gap is wider than it is in the US, particularly somewhere like LA, where they, they tend to breed a culture that are more comfortable in each other's space. So those cultural displays do absolutely have an effect. So does the expression of emotion. Like in Japan, it's frowned upon to be too expressive and we've seen this in studies of Japanese individuals. They have a high ability to recognize the emotional expressions and emotions being expressed of Western individuals, but struggle with individuals from their own culture because the expression of emotion is very cultural dependent. Now, in the UK, we're very deadpan. We're not as expressive. We're very blunt and dry. So I feel like I would be very comfortable in New York because it's a very similar culture, whereas in LA, it's slightly different. And firsthand, I do get this. People will say to me a lot, why are you in a bad mood or think I'm being harsh or mean? And I'm like, no, I'm just being funny. It's just a British thing. And in New York, <laughs> it's the same. You know, it's, it's blunt. It's more dry. That's why you should get to know the culture because nonverbals are universal or some nonverbals are universal, but culture tweaks them. So if you go to a culture and you haven't taken the time to learn the nonverbals, you can be in a negative situation. Like Bill Clinton went to throw the peace sign in Australia and he put two fingers up. And in America, I think this means peace. You do that to me, that you're swearing at me in the UK. That That's the flipping the bird with the two fingers. He didn't take the time to read that nonverbal display. There's a difference in culture and there was a backlash. So small things like that, particularly behaviors that are designed to communicate, they are culturally dependent. The funny thing about the US is the different states are almost like their own cultures, not to the same degree as Western versus say Eastern, but like you said, New York to LA are a great example of they are very different. So understanding if you have a, a client come in, taking a bit of time to look at where they come from and look at, okay, well, how does a New Yorker express themselves versus how does someone typically from LA express themselves? Just doing a little bit of research like that can help you because it can make them feel more familiar. Like if you have someone come in from an Eastern culture or somewhere where they curtsy or bow, 
and you do that as a greeting, it's a great sign of respect. I've taken the time to learn about your displays and instantly it creates a sense of liking and respect and it helps facilitate a positive interaction. When you take the time to make them feel more familiar, it has a really positive effect. But obviously not, again, with mimicry, don't overdo it. (laughs) So overtly that you try and become deadpan, the whole interaction to make them feel more comfortable. It doesn't have the same effect then. All right. Well, this is the persuasion occasion. So if you could end just really quickly some advice for our listeners on how to be more persuasive based on all the things that you know and have studied. How to summarize. I think self-awareness. When we think about being persuasive, we think um, non-verbals, we think about reading others, but it's a two-way street. So don't focus so much just on what you're expressing or just what you're reading. Remember, self-awareness and observational skills go hand in hand. You have to look at both sides of the coin. Okay. That was wonderful. You got to tell us the name of the book and when's it coming out? Yes. So the book is called The work in progress. And then the subtitle is The Road to Empowerment, The Journey Through Shame. And it's available for pre-order already on Amazon and all major bookstores. It will be released in July next year. Thank you so much, Abby. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. Hey, that was a great show. Thanks for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred listening platform. 